Praise God. It is a good day to be in God's house. Amen. It's a blessing to celebrate as a community, a wonderful uh, tribal moment. Again, just to reiterate from uh, the front, happy birthday to my brother. Also, happy birthday to my mom, um, who uh, had a birthday on the 11th of this month. And we, uh, we sang her happy birthday on Wednesday evening here in uh, Prayer Mountain and had a chance to celebrate her and uh, to all the January birthdays. It's just uh, wonderful to celebrate. My son asked me a trick question yesterday, my four-year-old. He kind of caught me off guard. He said, Daddy, how many birthdays have I had? Right? <laughs> so I thought about it, and I'm like, well, we've celebrated four birthdays because you're four years old, but your birth birth is like the biggest birthday because it's your birthday. So technically, you've had five. So he goes, so I'm five years old. I'm like... No, not really, but we got, we got lost in the logic, uh, but happy, happy birthday nonetheless. Um, we also celebrate, many uh, will uh, uh, have the, uh, the privilege of having an extra day off tomorrow and a three-day weekend um, because of a celebration uh, for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., um, whose birthday is also today. And uh, we want to uh, recognize uh, the pioneer and trailblazer uh, of, uh, of, of a mighty movement of God that has stirred and continues to stir our nation, which is in need, uh, a continual need of hearing the message that God placed on his heart, the message of justice and reconciliation. Um, in fact, as I was looking up here at the families who brought their babies to be dedicated unto the Lord, and I saw the diversity of uh, ethnicities and of, uh, of cultures, it reminded me of a, uh, a glimpse of the fulfillment of the vision that Dr. King shared, uh, that he said one day our children would be able to play on the same playgrounds and go into the same classrooms because he was ministering to a country where segregation at that time was very real um, and, in fact, uh, often reinforced within church context, which is evil. Um, and we're not ashamed to call it out from the pulpit at this church because we do believe that if we can't love our brother, we can't love God. If we can't love our sister, we can't love God. If we claim to love God and hate our brother, then we lie to ourselves and to our God. How could we look to our God, who is our creator, and say to him, I love you, but I don't like the ones that you created that don't look like me, that don't talk like me, that don't think like me, that don't eat like me, uh, that don't live in the same neighborhoods as me. Uh, we, we have a calling as a church. We've always had a calling as a church. Mission Ebenezer has always been a place that has sought uh, to lead, uh, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit into reconciliation, multiculturalism, because we believe that that is a reflection of the kingdom of God. And it's a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Amen? I hate to break it to you, but there aren't going to be neighborhoods in heaven. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us about neighborhoods in heaven. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us about area codes or zip codes or socioeconomic uh, disparities and differences. When we get there, we're all going to be the same. But until we're there, we have to find what it means to fight for God's vision of being the body of Christ, which goes beyond 
uh, the uh, political and racial divides that we continue to experience. Somebody uh, continues to make reference and say, why do we keep talking about these things? Because, you know, the uh, slavery doesn't exist anymore, and we've already been past the civil rights movement, and uh, we need to continue to be reminded that uh, we haven't made it yet. We've got work to do. Amen? Um, and so before we get to Second Chronicles, which I'm really excited to get into, I wanted to look at, just really briefly, uh, I'm not going to read the entire passage, but a parable that Jesus shared, uh, which reminds me a lot of the heart and ministry of Dr. King. And the parable is the, the, the parable where Jesus told his disciples about uh, someone who was throwing a great feast. And had prepared everything and went to the market and purchased all the food and, and decorated and spent a lot of time. And after you ever had a big party that you spent a lot of money and time and preparation to put together, right? Oftentimes, uh, because of the fact that we spent so much energy and attention on those things, whether it be a wedding or a quinceanera or a big birthday party or whatever, or retirement party, that we often uh, put out what's called an RSVP. Has anybody ever made an RSVP before that you send out, right? Because you want to know how much food to get, right? You want, you want to make sure you're not uh, uh, running short at the end of the night or ending up with all kinds of leftovers. Uh, so you want to find just the right amount so you do an RSVP. So Jesus tells a story about a man who was throwing a party, and he put out the RSVP, and everything was ready for the party. And all of a sudden, 15 minutes before everything got started, nobody was showing up. Nobody was showing up as a man. We got a, we got a lot of good food here. Uh, we got a DJ. Uh, we're going to have some good music, right? We got some live music. This is going to be a good party, but nobody showed up. So in the parable, Jesus says that the man spoke to his servants, and he told him after those who were originally invited, because they made all kinds of excuses, and they said, oh, I can't make it. You know, I just bought a field, or I just bought an ox, or I, I just got married, and I, I, I can't make it. Um, and, and so Jesus told him to, to go out. It says, uh, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. How beautiful is that? Right? Jesus tells us this parable that there was this beautiful party, there was a, an invitee list, all of them said, no thank you, and then the master of this, uh, of this particular event said to his servant, go and bring in those who've never got an invitation to a party like this before. Go, go and find those who have never received an RSVP invitation and bring them, right? Um, and then they, and they brought them and they said, there's still room. So he says, go out into the highways and the byways and bring them in to enjoy this feast. And, and that, what a beautiful reminder that is for us as the body of Christ to always ask ourselves the question, who hasn't been invited? Who hasn't? Who's been left out? Right? Um, even as I look at our, our gathering this morning, this is a full house. Praise God for a full house at a 9 o'clock service on a Sunday morning. But I wonder as we go into 2023 if there might be a neighbor or a friend or a brother or a sister who needs an invitation to come and feast on what God has been doing in this congregation and in our ministry. Amen? Uh, so I want to recognize Dr. King and his legacy, and I also want to encourage us, hey, there's room at the table. 
let's invite our friends and family to come and be part of the great work that God's doing here at Mission Ebenezer Family Church. Amen? Praise God. So we're going to jump over now to the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, and look at this uh, story that is the, uh, the, the verse that is guiding our theme for this year, which is God is faithful. Can everybody say, God is faithful? One more time. God is faithful. And so we're looking at this story. We've been referencing it for the last couple weeks. And it's a story of a king in Judah called Jehoshaphat. It's kind of hard to say, but if you say it a lot of times, maybe you'll get it down. Um, and, uh, and, and it's a story of one who is exemplifying godly leadership. And we're going to look at the story and understand it from the standpoint of faith today. But before we get there, I want to start by asking a question to kind of uh, get us in the frame of mind that this story is addressing. And the question that I want to ask is, have you ever received bad advice? H- have you ever received bad advice In fact, if we had time, I would love to do an exercise where I would ask you this question, and then you could talk about it with each other. We're not going to do that. Maybe over lunch or or something, you could talk about it with somebody else. Uh, But what is the worst advice you have ever received? What is the worst advice you have ever received? Some of you shouldn't say it out loud because it probably came from somebody who's in this room. Uh, You might be sitting next. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I remember uh, some of the, the worst advice that I received. I was a freshman in college, so that's kind of already starting off on a bad note because freshmen in college are always trying to figure out how to survive and, you know, what to do. And so you're always like you're hungry for information and you think everybody else knows better than you. So sure enough, an older student, you know, who looked to be responsible came and uh, I signed up for a class and it was a large 300 person lecture uh, in, in this particular class. And, um, and so I'm like kind of looking at my, my bank account and I've got to go buy books. And the book for this particular class was like $200. And it was about this thick, right? And it was a, it was a psychology class. And I had a, a student come along who was a sophomore one year ahead of me, like way smarter than me, right? Um, way more knowledgeable, full of way more wisdom. Do you know what the meaning of sophomore means, by the way? It means a wise fool. Um, sophos coming from wisdom and more, we know what word that comes from, moron, right? Um, so a sophomore is a wise fool. So this wise fool came up to me and said, you don't have to buy the book for that class because all of your quizzes and tests only refer to the class notes. So I thought to myself, I'll save $200. I'll take great notes. I had a thick binder of notes at the end of the semester, and when I took my final, guess what the questions were coming from? The book. And I got a bad grade in the class. Bad, bad advice, and I followed it. But what, what's some bad advice that you have, uh, that you've ever received? And, uh, and I, I share that simply to say, when it comes to advice, many of us fall on different uh, places in the spectrum. Some of us are, uh, are not able to discern what is good advice from bad advice, right? And so we often find ourselves making decisions that are following poor wisdom. And others of us might struggle with something called pride to the point where we don't welcome anybody's advice because we've got it all figured out. Why would I need to ask somebody's advice if I know what's, what's better? And so I just kind of go about my business and and so here we find ourselves in 2 Chronicles in between a series of stories where there are kings and leaders 
who are trying to make big decisions and recognize that in the decision-making process, it might be a good idea to seek good advice. Uh, the story that precedes 2 Chronicles chapter 20, just a couple chapters earlier in chapter 18, is actually the story uh, that my wife and I got my, my, uh, my third child's name, Micaiah. And it's a small story in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, and it, it talks about another king, the king of Israel. Uh, Israel and Judah were neighboring countries, both uh, kind of two parts of what we would call God's people, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And King Ahab was the king of Israel. And, and in Second Chronicles 18, um, he was kind of in a similar situation. We find ourselves a couple chapters later in chapter 20 where he was trying to make a decision as to whether or not he should go into battle against Ramoth-Gilead. So Ahab's approach, rather than asking for advice, rather than seeking uh, God's uh, uh, direction and wisdom, Ahab goes to King Jehoshaphat and he says to him, let's go to battle. Right? There, there, there's a, an enemy that's rising up, let's go fight them. And he makes a decision. Right? He doesn't say, do you think we should go into battle? Uh, should we seek the Lord as to whether or not it's a good idea to go into battle? He just makes a decision, an impulsive decision. A decision that demonstrates that he felt like he uh, knew what was best without actually looking for godly wisdom or counsel. So King Jehoshaphat, who is a bit more humble, um, says to King Ahab, why don't we first seek what God would say? Before we go into battle and put all of our, our people at risk, why don't we see whether or not this is a good idea in the Lord's eyes? So King Jehoshaphat already kind of challenges his counterpart in Israel and tells him, let's go and seek the Lord. And, and as we look at that story, and as we think about just the, the juxtaposition between chapter 18 and chapter 20, we see a leader who at that point a, feels like he's got all the right answers, and B, it wants to make big decisions very quickly. And I feel like that's a word for somebody here today who might struggle with impulse control. Maybe there are some here who there are big decisions to be made, and maybe whether it's fear, whether it's excitement, you quickly make a decision and jump all the way in without actually taking a moment to say, what does God have to say about this? What does my wife think about this? What does my husband think about this? What does my boss think about this? What does my team think about this? Rather than, than actually taking a step back to weigh whether or not that's a good thing to do, some of us struggle with impulse control, and we go right into something out of excitement or out of fear and find ourselves in precarious situations. Don't be like King Ahab. It didn't work out really well for him. Let me talk a little bit more about what took place in chapter 18. So Ahab then listens to Jehoshaphat, right? And he says, okay, good idea. Let's go talk to some prophets and see what they have to say about whether or not we should go into battle. So King Ahab goes to 400 prophets. Somebody say 400. 400. Now that's a lot of prophets, right? That's a lot of prophets. So he goes to 400 prophets and he says, hey, I'm thinking about going into battle against Ramoth Gilead. What does the Lord think about whether or not we should go into battle against them? And in unison, in the same key, all 400 prophets say, go into battle, the Lord will be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've got 400 people in a room and they all say the same thing, right, you should have some question marks that go off in your head. 
You should be wondering to yourself, is it that we are aligned because this is the right thing, or are they aligned because they just want to make sure the king is hearing whatever the king wants to hear? So, of course, you know, as these 400 prophets, I'd call them yes men, right? Some of us struggle with surrounding ourselves when we do want to ask for advice. We ask for advice from people we know are going to tell us what we want to hear, not the right thing. Right? It's a little bit more comfortable to surround ourselves with people that, uh, that, uh, that, that will affirm our decisions, our lifestyle, our choices, our beliefs, our values, rather than asking somebody we believe might challenge us, might say, hey, I don't know if that's the right way of thinking about it. Right? It's a little bit more uncomfortable when we receive challenge. When somebody challenges our, our, our decision, when somebody challenges our thought process, when somebody challenges our motive, we get a little bit defensive. Raise your hand if you get a little defensive when somebody challenges you, right? And for those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're lying. You are lying. You are lying. So we got two kinds of people in here, defensive people and liars, okay? And now you're defensive because they just called you a liar, even though... I don't even know who I'm talking. You're putting yourself out there. So, uh, so, so here we, we, we find Ahab gets 400 prophets. He, tell, he asks them this question. They all say yes, and then they have this arguing match, and they say, isn't there somebody here who's willing to, to tell the truth, right? Telling the truth can be hard sometimes. You know, sometimes I find myself in a big meeting uh, on the university campus and a lot of important people around the room and there's a, a conversation and it seems to be going in a certain direction and then I feel something within my spirit that, uh, that is kind of saying, you know what, I don't think all of the factors are being taken into consideration in the trajectory of this meeting, but if I say something, I'm going against some really powerful people that are in this room and then I have to ask the Lord, right? Lord, should I say it or should I not? Right? And the Lord says, go for it. Right? They might not like it, but it's not your job to tell them what they like. It's your job to share right, what is on your heart. Uh, I'll, I'm grateful that I've been coached by leaders above me that have said, the, you're here because we want to hear what you have to say. If we didn't want to hear what you have to say, you wouldn't have been invited to this meeting. Right? And I'm grateful for that. And so I'm reminded that in this moment, all of a sudden, Ahab is surrounded by these 400 yes men. And they say, well, there's this one prophet, this guy named Micaiah, who is known to say the hard thing. Right? Um, he, he's known to go against the grain and to say what the Lord is saying and not just what people want to hear. So they go and they talk to him, right? And they say, what do you think? Should we go into battle? And, uh, and at first he was a little bit afraid because it's like 400 versus one. That's a rough, some rough odds, right? And so the first, first response, he says, yeah, yeah, you'll have success. Go ahead, go into battle. And they press him a little further. Come on, come on. Tell us really what God is saying. And, and then Micaiah says, do you really want to know? And, and they say, yeah, we really want to know. He says, if you go into battle, you're going to lose, Israel's going to be scattered. You're going to be like sheep without a shepherd. And you're going to die, King Ahab, right? And the king is like, well, these 400 prophets are saying yes. One of you is saying no, so let's take a vote. You're wrong. You're going to jail. So they throw Micaiah into prison, go into battle anyway. As you can guess, Ahab dies in battle. So that's chapter 18, right? It's a story about should we go into battle? 
And then how do we go about the process of figuring out what's the right decision here? And we see an example, and it's kind of the counter example in chapter 18 as to how not to lead, as to how not to be a king, right? Don't think you got all the answers. Don't surround yourself with people who are going to tell you what you want to hear. Don't make quick decisions about big, significant uh, uh, moments that have tremendous implications. But chapter 20 gives us another example. A beautiful example that almost flips the entire paradigm of chapter 18 on its head. So we've been looking at this chapter, and I love it. And as we've been looking at uh, what this chapter is all about, it starts out with the very same premise of chapter 18 by saying this. After this, the Moabites, verse 1 of chapter 20, and the Ammonites with some of the uh, Meunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army, somebody say vast army, is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is En Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved, look at that, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. So let me pause there. See, when, 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 when we're in a situation where all of a sudden a threat shows itself, when we're in a situation where a problem arises and it's big, it's normal and natural for us, like Jehoshaphat, to be alarmed. Right? To be alarmed. That just means your nervous system is working properly. Right? Some people say, you know, we, there's this big uh, company in the 90s. I don't really see it around very much anymore these days, but it was a company called No Fear. Remember No Fear? No Fear shirts, No Fear hats, No Fear gear and all that. And, and, and my big thing is I understand where they're coming from, which is be bold, be courageous. But if you have no fear, that means you're an idiot. Like if a mountain lion walked up into your backyard because you lived up in the foothills and you were not afraid, you would be an idiot, right? You would be disconnected from your nervous system because God wired us to be afraid of things from time to time. It's what we do with that fear that matters. Do we crumble when we experience fear or do we experience that fear and immediately recognize what needs to happen in order for us to gain the courage to address why we're afraid in the first place? So it says that Jehoshaphat was alarmed. That doesn't make him a bad king. But it doesn't say alarmed King Jehoshaphat went crazy into a panic attack and started yelling and screaming and running around within the palace. That's also not a good way to practice leadership. Right? He was alarmed, but he wasn't going crazy. He was alarmed, but he wasn't creating a, a panic and a stir. Right? I want to encourage us because God has called us all into spiritual leadership, whether we're parents, moms and dads, and we're leading our families, or you're leading in your workplace, or whatever it may be. But whenever something happens that causes you to be alarmed, do the best you can to contain that because however you respond is going to have a ripple effect to the people that are looking to you for leadership. Right? So Jehoshaphat was alarmed, but it says immediately he resolved to inquire of the Lord. Very different than Ahab. Ahab was alarmed. Let's go fight him. Come on. 400 people. Yeah, let's go fight him. God's got your back. One person says, bad idea. 
Throw that guy in jail. Let's go into battle. Boom, you're dead. Why? Because you reacted as opposed to experiencing an alarm and going to the Lord. God, I don't know what I'm going to do right now about my financial situation. Don't panic. Go to the Lord. Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do right now about this relationship challenge that I'm having. Somebody that I love all of a sudden is ghosting me, and I'm afraid I'm going to lose this relationship. Rather than panic, go to the Lord. Lord, I'm not too sure how I'm supposed to act in my workplace right now. Things are tense. It's hard. Alarmed rather than panic, go to the Lord. So Jehoshaphat gives us the, the uh, example. He, he's alarmed, but it says he resolved to inquire of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? So he sought the Lord. He proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, and then he begins to pray. So let me, let me highlight a few other things about what's taking place in this very moment, right? He, he, he heard this uh, really uh, challenging news, and he didn't react. He didn't react to this news. Instead, he says, let's go to the Lord, right? So this is, this is powerful. Ahab, uh, he was impulsive, Imagining that he was crafty enough to figure things out. He had pride, arrogance, and impatience. However, Jehoshaphat receives news that the threat of war is mounting. He doesn't panic. He seeks the Lord first, and he calls Judah to fast and to pray. See, prayer, Pastor Dozier mentioned this last Sunday as we were praying together. Prayer is not just a defensive weapon, but it's an offensive weapon as well. We don't only go to prayer when we've tried everything else and nothing's working, so I guess I should ask God for help, right? Uh, we often, uh, you know, in football, and by the way, RIP to my uh, Seattle Seahawks. They played a good first half, but the Niners prevailed, so I'll give credit where credit is due to the San Francisco 49ers with a third-string quarterback. Mr. Irrelevant. Is very relevant at the moment. <laughs> and a lot of other teams have become irrelevant, including the Chargers, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Why did I bring that up? Okay, I think I remember. There's this thing when you're like third and 15. And for some of you who don't know football, you're like, I have no idea what those numbers mean. Fourth and long. Seconds on the clock are ticking down, less than five seconds. You're down by five points. A field goal won't do it. What's often the play that people call? A Hail Mary, right? Which is named after a prayer, a Catholic prayer, which shows us that when we've tried everything and nothing has worked, then the best thing we can do is throw up a prayer. But Jehoshaphat starts with prayer. First and 10, with 15 minutes on the clock in the first quarter, prayer. Not fourth and long in the fourth quarter when I tried everything on my own. 
He starts with prayer and says, Lord, we need you. Oh, man, this is a beautiful example of really awesome spiritual leadership that we could learn from. He stands in front of everybody. See, I've seen leaders that like to make decisions in rooms where nobody could see them. And when things are going on, nobody can hear from them, and they're trying to figure out what's happening around here. Jehoshaphat gets in front of everybody so that they could see him. He goes to the, the, the middle of the courtyard by the temple, and he stands up, and he says, we need to fast and pray because there's a big problem coming our way. Isn't that awesome to have honest leadership, to have transparent leadership, to have visible leadership, to have leadership that knows how to communicate? And there's other attributes that we're going to see that come through this prayer. Let's look at the prayer together. It's wonderful. And it's way different than Ahab. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the nations, the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. How awesome is that? Jehoshaphat was a historian. He was a, a theological historian and said, God, this is the reason why we built this temple in the first place is for moments like this. We've declared that when we're up against something that we can't handle, we don't, we're not going to try to do it on our own, but we're going to gather in this place and call upon you, whom this place is named after, so that you could meet us. That's why we built this in the first place. Isn't that awesome? He says, and we'll cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us. And then he gives the Lord the, 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 the reality, the update. He says, but now here are men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession that you've, gave, you've given us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. Watch this verse. We do not know what to do. Wow. Somebody say wow. So again, as I'm looking at Jehoshaphat and how the Lord anointed him to lead this people, we often think that when it comes to being in a position of leadership, or there's a parent or in a workplace, that we have to have all the answers. That we have to look confident, that we have it all figured out, that we can't ever be nervous or worried, that we can't ever admit our vulnerability. He admits vulnerability and says, A, we're not strong enough to beat them. B, I have no idea what to do. Right? Some people are like, do not show them weakness, because if they see that you're weak, then they're not going to follow you. Stand up there and be strong, right? Uh, but, but Jehoshaphat goes up there and says, I'm not going to try to be strong, because in this particular moment, I got no strength, but I believe that my God is strong. I don't know what to do, but I believe that my God knows what to do. Let me share this little bit of uh, a takeaway from this particular story. It's okay to not know what to do. 
That just means you're human. It's okay to not have all the answers and have it figured out and be 10 steps ahead of everybody. It's okay to show weakness. Oh, man, that's a hard word, especially for guys, especially for myself. I'll admit it. I'll make it really personal. It's hard for me to show weakness. I don't want my wife to see me weak. I don't want my kids to see me weak. I want them to see, hey, daddy's got this. It's all under control. He has a plan. He's going to figure it out. But there comes a moment when I have to recognize that if I trust in my own wisdom and if I trust in my own strength and if I trust in my own toughness or fortitude, then I'm going to lead my family right into a battle that we can't win. But if I recognize, Lord, I need you. I don't know what to do right now. I'm a little bit confused. I've got some different advice coming my way, and I'm not sure whether or not it's good. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. Lord, I need you. I don't want to make these decisions on my own. I don't want to lead these people on my own. If you don't show up, God... It's going to be real ugly, real quick. Man, what a powerful, comparative story between Ahab's leadership and Jehoshaphat. Where Jehoshaphat comes before the Lord and says, Lord, we don't got all the answers and we don't have enough men. We don't even have enough artillery. We don't have enough swords. We don't have enough shields. We don't have enough chariots. We don't have enough horses. We don't have enough money. We're kind of at a loss, God. Man, when you get to a point where you could look at your life and you could recognize that, that, that you've come to a place where your, 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 your ability to perform, where your strength, where your wisdom, where your strategy, where, where, your, where, 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 you, where your talents come to a place and it's almost like your toes are at the edge of a cliff and you don't know where to go beyond that. You have just come to a beautiful place in your faith walk because it's in that moment where all of a sudden you say, Lord, Lord. I don't got it. We can't do it. See, some of us, we think, uh, we, we think it's like uh, spiritually illegal to admit those things. Right? Well, what do you mean you can't do it? Of course you can do it. You got victory. But, but we, 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 we can't forget that the victory that we have is in Christ. It's not victory that you have in yourself. It's not manifested because you're, you're, you're wearing a copper bracelet and you're grounding yourself to the elements of the earth and you've stared at the stars the right way and, and you have lines on your palm that go a particular way uh, and you were born in a particular month. It's not going to align for you because of those things. If you do have victory, it's going to be because your God has given you the victory. So it's okay to say, I don't know. In fact, not only is it okay, it is right to say, I don't know, because it's when we say, I don't know, and I need help, that God says, finally, 
Shoot, I've been trying to butt in this whole time, but you're over here rehearsing your plan, your whack plan, your, your terrible plan that you went into your garage with a, with, a, with, with a whiteboard and wrote up on when I'm over here trying to get you what you're supposed to be doing in the next five to ten years. You, you can't hear what I'm trying to say because you didn't leave any space on your whiteboard for my marker. I got ideas. I got plans. I got resources. <laughs> I got wisdom. I got strength. I got courage. I got hope. I got joy. I got peace. Oh, man. God's like, come on. I've been waiting for you to say you can't so that I could show you that I can. But, 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 but we never get to that point when we pridefully, arrogantly, impatiently make our own decisions because we don't want to be perceived as weak and stupid. But it's when we're weak and stupid that we find out that God is strong and wise. Jehoshaphat is, is humble. I love that. He stands in front of everybody and he's like, all right, everybody, here's the plan. I don't have a plan. <laughs> Listen up. Stand firm. We're going to get killed out there. <laughs> right? Like, he's like, they're better than us. In every facet of the game. <laughs> Somebody was asking me the other day, what do you think about the Seahawks and the 49ers? I was like, well, you know, um, they got a pretty good defense. They got a pretty good offense. They got pretty good special teams. They're just really good. <laughs> Jehoshaphat is here in front of his people and he's telling them, we can't do it, y'all. And some of us are like, man, that's unmotivating uninspirational, right? But he wasn't doing it in a defeatist way. He was doing it in a truthful, honest way. And uh, when we're able to be truthful, what, is, what does the Bible say about the truth? The truth will? Right? But sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes it's easier to like put on all kinds of lies because it feels better. Right? We wear all kinds of lies. We can cover up the hard truth. Be perceived a particular way. Everybody thinks a certain thought, when in reality, if we really deal with the truth, it hurts more, but it leads to freedom. What would we rather have? Would we rather be living a lie that looks like false success? Or would we be willing to say, Lord, I want to get down to the core of what's real, because I do believe that from there, we're moving toward victory and freedom. And whether Jehoshaphat was doing this or the Lord was guiding it, let me point out a couple other things that were happening in this moment as they prayed to the Lord. Number one, prayer is an offensive weapon. Number two, prayer reminds us that God's in control and we aren't, that we're dependent upon God. Prayer reminds us and it forces us to pause before we react. If we say, I got to pray about it, that's a good practice. Why? Because it means we are practicing the ability to receive some kind of stimulus and not react to that stimulus, but simply say, Lord, what should I be doing about that? What should I think about that? How should I respond to that? What's happening within me? And how do you want me to act or speak as a result of what I just experienced right now? 
And the Holy Spirit says, well, you're feeling defensive. Why? Because they touched on a touchy subject. Okay, what am I supposed to do about it? Recognize that you don't need to be defensive about it because if it's actually true, it's going to lead you toward healing. Okay, how do I do that? Surrender it to me and and don't worry about how people perceive you. Okay, I'm going to try that. And we go step by step until all of a sudden we're ready to make a good decision that is based in God's wisdom and the Holy Spirit's direction. Rather than impulsively doing, saying, reacting in ways that are connected to how we feel in that moment. How many of us have made mistakes in our lives because we have reacted in a moment based on how we were feeling? Right? All of a sudden your blood starts to boil, right? right. For me, like I start getting like, like I get a, like, like a jolt that starts going to the front part of my forehead. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, man. It's probably like emanating from me. And I have to realize, take a breath. Take a step back. Maybe take a walk, right? Maybe pull out a piece of paper because writing things down can often help. And then all of a sudden we're able to make sound, wise decisions as opposed to simply reacting. So, so uh, Jehoshaphat calls the people together. They pray. They're not reacting, right? They're pausing. And then what else happens here? They come together. They're praying together. Unity. I don't know about you, but there's hardly any more powerful thing on this earth than people being united together. Right? Maybe they didn't have enough horses. Maybe they didn't have enough swords. Maybe they didn't have enough men. Maybe they didn't have enough generals. But at least they were unified. I'd rather be unified in a small group. The Bible teaches this over and over again. I'd rather, like, uh, like Gideon, I'd rather be unified in a small group than have a whole bunch of people who are divided against each other. The history of Rome teaches us that counter story. Doesn't matter how many you have if you're not together. So Jehoshaphat's people were together, and they were together in prayer. What an amazing battle strategy. Right? So he comes, and he communicates, and he says to them, I don't know what to do. See, sometimes we get to a point of desperation in our own humanity, and our Uh, action ends with like an exclamation point after that phrase. We don't know what to do, exclamation point. But 2 Chronicles chapter 20 says, we don't know what to do, comma. Somebody say comma. Comma means the idea ain't over yet, right? Can we get some grammar going? Is that all right? You're going to pass your English this semester. Praise God. I'm going to write that paper. Get a little bit less red on on that correction, right? We don't know what to do, comma, means... The idea ain't finished yet, right? So it's not despair for the sake of despair. That's called emo, right? We're not walking around with our heads hanging low because we got no answers and there's nothing to do about it. No, we got no answers, comma, comma. However, we got no answers. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you, verse 12 says, Somebody should highlight that, underline that, circle that, check mark that. We don't know what to do, comma, but our eyes are upon you. Praise God. Right? I love uh, driving around with like a young adult, like a, 17, 18-year-old who's getting ready. to Maybe they just got their license or they're getting ready to get their license. And all of a sudden, they start paying attention to where they are. 
when they're in the passenger seat because they're like, I never had to before. This la 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 sitting in the back seat, getting from you. All of a sudden, you stepped into a vehicle, and then the car stops, and you step out, and you got where you wanted to go. But pretty soon, you got to be the one to get people to where they want to go. And so, all of a sudden, what's this street called again? Oh, 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 this is this is yeah, this is Main Street. Okay, what's this freeway called? Oh, this is the this is the the 110 freeway, right? Like all of a sudden, their awareness of where they are all of a sudden goes up, but. My little dude, Micaiah, he's a crack up because he thinks he knows where to go all the time. And sometimes he'll tell me. In fact, one time he pulled my phone that had the map off of the little, the little stand in my phone. He says, Dad, you don't need that. I know how to tell us to get to where we're trying to get to. Go left right here. So then, like, you know, I'll go left. Go right right here. Okay, I'll go right. Like, he is the most engaged little backseat driver that I've had. My other kids, they're like in La La Land. They don't matter to them, but I bring that up simply to say, here Jehoshaphat was like, Lord, we don't know where we're going. And, and, and I hear the Lord looking at him and saying, well, you ain't driving anyway. <laughs> Just like put your seatbelt on. <laughs> put your seatbelt on and let me do the driving, right? I'll get us where we need to get to. So then... Uh, Verse 13, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jahaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite, which is a priest, by the way, and descendant of Asaph, which is a, uh, a poet. So here, Jahazel is, uh, comes from a line of priests and poets as he stood in the assembly. So just remember, two chapters ago, 400 people were like, uh, hey, you want to hear what the Lord says? Go ahead and do it. God will give you success. False prophets. Bunch of lies. Everybody was afraid of Ahab. They were just trying to tell him what he wanted to hear. Now we find ourselves in a similar position where Jehoshaphat called everybody to fast and to pray and to seek the Lord. There's a little bit of fear in the air. There's a little bit of togetherness in the air. A little bit of curiosity in the air. And all of a sudden, this Jahaziel stands up. He stands up. Right? We saw Micaiah in 18 stand up. Jahaziel in 20 stands up. And he said... Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. And tomorrow, march down against them, and they will be climbing up. And he starts to get into some details. The pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. And you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions and stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. It's interesting. The word that uh, Jahaziel says to King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, 
sounds kind of like the word that the 400 false prophets said to Ahab in chapter 18. Go and do it, you'll be successful. So what's the difference? The difference here between the 400 false prophets and this one prophet who stands up is that it was connected to a prolonged period of prayer. It was connected to humble leadership. It was connected to truth-telling. You couldn't tell the truth around Ahab. He didn't want to hear it. Jehoshaphat leads the example and tells the truth when probably he was maybe a little worried about how others would receive the truth. But he established a culture of truth. Therefore, the Spirit of God moved in a particular way to where this young man was able to stand up and truthfully proclaim the word of the Lord. And he says, the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. I mean, that just sounds more spiritual than those 400 whack prophets. They didn't even have any good words to put onto it. They were just like, go, you got this. They'd be like, y'all are lying. But here, Jehaziel, look at him, man. He doesn't stand up and start blowing smoke and saying what Jehoshaphat wants to hear. He says, don't be afraid or discouraged. Woo! Now that's the scriptures. There's probably not a more uh, repeated refrain throughout Genesis through Revelation than that encouragement that comes through God's prophets or angels or whoever may be to encourage people when they're feeling down, afraid, and discouraged. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Just because this is a vast army for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. Woo! He says, go down. And then he starts to give them specifics. Remember those other 400 prophets? They didn't have no specifics. <laughs> right? They didn't, have, they didn't, they didn't know, say nothing about no gorge or the passives is. They just said, like, you got this, Ahab. But, Je, but Je, Jahaziel goes into detail to provide confirmation. This isn't my word. This isn't a made-up word. This isn't a word to make everybody feel good in this moment. This isn't a word to give you encouragement as the king. This is a word from God for what you're going through in this very exact moment. Be reminded that this battle ain't even yours in the first place, but it belongs to God, and he's going to bring us to victory, and this is how he's going to do it. Be encouraged, people. So watch how Jehoshaphat, we're going to end on this because we got a few more weeks to unpack this passage, right, Pastor Josh? We're not done with this just yet. We got to keep, we got to keep extracting what God has for us in this, in this word. Jehoshaphat in verse 18, bowed with his face to the ground. Woo! I don't know about you, but you ever receive a word from God and you can't even stand anymore? You ever receive a word from God and all of a sudden you just, you, tears start to form in your eyes because you, you know that in that very moment that you're in the presence of God who's got you, who's holding you, who's guiding you, who's directing you, who, who's encouraging you, who's strengthening you, who's reminding you that it, it, your plan isn't, isn't the best plan to begin with. But, but in that very moment, you just experience the, the, the real, tangible, eternal spirit of God at work in your life, ministering to your heart, guiding your mind, preparing your body for action because in that particular moment, you are in the presence of God. You ever experienced that before? 
If not, I would encourage you, press into the Lord because he has that for you. You don't got to fight your battles on your own. You, you don't got to get up and try to do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday on your own. You don't got to try to fix your family on your own. You, got, you don't got to try to uh, jump into all these situations on your own strength, but you need to be reminded in that moment, whoo, God is here. God is here. Muhammad Ali liked to walk into a place and say the champ is here so that everybody knows that he's arrived and that he's the champ. But Muhammad Ali, God bless him, ain't nothing compared to your God. God is here. God is here. Jehoshaphat couldn't even stand anymore. It says he bowed down. I love that. I love that. Too often, I believe people in a high position of power, somebody under you, right, because he's the, the uh, Jahazel is the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, and who knows who he is. They, they had to give him all these names because nobody knew who he was. Just in case you didn't know who Jahazel is, his dad is so-and-so, and then his dad was so-and-so, and, and then, they, you know, they used to live over there on that one block, and then, and then his dad was so-and-so, and, and, and they had to give him all these names because they're trying to demonstrate that, uh, that, 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 that he was somebody, and, and because probably he felt like he was nobody, but he stood up and said what God had to say. But how, how many times do leaders in a situation like that say, oh, thank you for your input, let's hear what other people have to say, right? Demean that person because they don't have the right title, because they don't have the right uh, uh, age or experience or, or, or pedigree, because they don't have the right background or whatever it may be. You demean somebody. But, but I love Jehoshaphat's humility as the king of Judah. Uh, Je what's his name? Jahaziel stands up, gives this prophecy. Jehoshaphat falls on the ground. Uh, he, 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 Jehoshaphat's not thinking, man, I wish I would have been the one to say those words. And people would have seen me as the spiritual leader of, of Judah, right? Why did it have to come from that dude that nobody even knows, right? And now I look like a fool because I'm over here saying I don't know what to do. And then he gives us this. He wasn't thinking about that because it doesn't matter to him. All he cares about is serving God and protecting his people. He's not worried about his image. He's not worried about what other people think about him. They're not giving him a 360-degree uh, review and evaluation as a king of Judah. All he cares about in that moment is, God, what should we do? Be present with us and guide us. And so he falls on his face as the king. Just be reminded, I mean, we've seen enough, you know, TV shows and movies that depict kings to recognize that you don't often see them fall on their face. And yet here he goes, falling on his face. He bows down, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down whoo, in worship before the Lord. Oh, that was a revival moment, church. A revival of truth, a revival of humility, a revival of dependence, a, a revival of togetherness, a, a, a revival of, uh, of, uh, of allowing God's people to recognize who's really in charge. Oh, man, this is powerful. So they all bowed down and they worshiped before the Lord. And then the Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord. And God of Israel, with a very loud voice, early in the morning, they left for the desert, right? And it goes on and on. And I'm not going to keep going. I'm going to finish right there. And they just praised God in that particular moment. Wow. Wow. This is a great model. When you come up against news, 
that seems difficult. Don't panic. Don't react. Seek the Lord. Cry out to him. Be honest about it. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning as we get ready to close? So today we unpacked kind of a comparative analysis between poor leadership and good, sound, spiritual leadership. And we recognize that in this moment, what that led to was a, a place in this story where they have yet to go into battle. However, in that moment, the battle was already won. Right in that moment where the Lord revealed himself, God spoke, the people responded, worship took place. They were, they, were, they were in this moment that I would call faith. Because faith is that space between where we are and what we're hoping to see happen. Right? Faith is that space. And, and, and so here they find themselves. And, and maybe God this morning is ministering to somebody here today to let you know I want to build your faith this year. I want to build your faith this year to trust in me. Not even if, but especially when you recognize you have run out of options. Faith. Trust. I believe that you are there, God. I believe that you're a good God. I believe that you're a mighty God. And I believe that you're for me. What more do we need than that? I believe that you see me and you know me. I believe that you have a better plan for my life than I do for myself. What more do we need than that? I believe that you're with me. You'll never leave me nor forsake me. You never have. You never will. What more do we need than that? And I believe that if you said it, then you're going to do it. What more do we need than that? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, man, your word is filled with these beautiful chronicles of your goodness, your faithfulness, which is uh, often on display in our weakness, in our failures, in our fear. So we're not asking you to make us unweak or unafraid. Uh, we're asking you to meet us in our weakness and fear and teach us to place our faith and trust in you daily, consistently, and regularly. We thank you for this moment to be challenged and uh, encouraged by a few who sought you with pure hearts. And we pray that you would continue to build in us the faith to face and confront the things that are right in front of us. Not run away from them, not pretend like they're not there, not jump up and down with false victory, but maybe in humility and authenticity, start with 
recognizing, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And I ain't strong enough. But our eyes remain on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.